Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. The story of King David is a remarkable testimony of God's faithfulness to his people Israel. His life and faith journey point us to Christ, who is the promised king that would surpass David and save his people. You can find more information about this series at gatewaycrc.org. And now, here's this week's message. Good morning, Gateway Church. My name is Case Van Bodegom, and my beautiful wife, Helen, you understand? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> and I've been attending Gateway for 10 plus years. I'm usually behind the camera, what I really prefer way better. And I also am a care team leader since 2020. The scripture reading today comes from 1 Samuel 15, verse 1 through 11. The Lord rejects Saul as king. Samuel said to Saul, I am the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Israel, uh, from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put them to death, men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them to Tilaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Canaanites, go away, leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Canaanites moved away from the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Ajak, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with a sword. But Saul and the army spared Ajak and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely. But everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and he has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry. And he cried out to the Lord all that night. This is the word of the Lord. A.W. Towser, in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, writes this thought-provoking idea, this concept. He says, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I found myself thinking a lot about this statement over the last number of weeks. Maybe it's because I'm getting older in life, but I'm coming more and more to the realization that what I think about God determines and affects not only what I think about God, but my relationship to God. 
but it also affects how I choose to live my life, how I choose to raise my children, or my work ethic here at the church, or, or how we worship together, or our marriages, or how we live into our singleness, what we determine to watch on Netflix, or what we scroll on our social media apps far too long every week. It determines what we look at. It makes a difference of what we watch on our YouTube channels. It makes a difference of, of who we choose to be our social influencers in life. What we think about God shapes everything about us, and it shapes the course of our life. Imagine for a moment if what comes to mind when you think about God is that he is your buddy God, and that, that God is on, on our level. Would that not change how we think about God? If, if God is our buddy God and we come so casually before God always and we just give him the high five and say, hey, yo, bro, and he becomes our chilling brother and that's all we do is that casual relationship with God, would that perhaps change how you respond to God and your relationship to God? Or what if we think of God primarily as a score-keeping God? That whenever you think of God in your mind, all you see is a big scorecard and, and your name is in a big black print right across the top. And you try to shape your life to do everything that you can so that you can be on the good side and that you're not going to get a check mark on the naughty side. And he's more like a Santa Claus kind of a God. If that were the case, that would kind of shape how you do things. That might, might shape the motive behind doing certain things in life. Or what about if every time you think of God, he becomes this buffet God? It would be kind of nice, wouldn't it? All you think of is this holy buffet in heaven, up in the sky, and you, you can pick a little bit from here, and you can take a little bit there. Today, I want a little bit of Mark, because I'm really feeling it with Mark. But Romans, not going to do that. But I really want a big scoop and big scoop full of this thing here, because this is going to make me feel so good today. But man, let's... let's Let's leave Romans for another day. Wouldn't that be nice? We can just kind of pick and choose and, and kind of determine what we want depending on our mood, depending on our day. Wouldn't that change a little bit of, of how we view God and our relationship to God and how obedient we want to be to him? Or what if the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about God is that he is our Father God? What if that was the main image that came to mind every time you would think of God? Wouldn't that change? What if, what if you think of, of a loving father who shelters you under his wings, who shows you compassion, that he is a, a father that, that's not going to provoke you to anger, that he is the perfect father to the fatherless, that you are, you are lovingly adopted as his child, that he is the king of kings, but he's so much more. That he is the, the ruler of the universe, but he's, he's so much more than that. That he is the alpha and the omega, but he's so much more than that. That he's the ruler of the universe, and he's so much more. He's immortal, but so much more. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills, but he's so much more. He's the creator God, and so much, so much more. And yet, if we view him as Father God, you and I, we get to come before his throne and we get to call him dad. Wouldn't that change everything? Wouldn't that change 
your relationship and your view of God and how obedient you will be to him? What comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us because it will determine how we treat each other. But more importantly, it will determine how we live our life in relationship to God and our willingness to be obedient to him or not. It affects every aspect of life. See, last week, Pastor Justin shared how the Israelites asked for an earthly king. How the Israelites, they wanted to be like everybody else. That was their desire. They wanted God plus. Remember that? So God granted them their desire, and Saul became their new appointed king. He became the king of Israel. And may I encourage you this week, whether that's in your life group or whether that's in your personal devotion, to read 1 Samuel 9 to 14. There's so much good stuff in that, and we're going to get to that in, in future weeks. But take some time to read that this week. But for today, we want to jump to chapter 15 to explore together the results of King Saul's decision to have God plus, and how that equals to disobedience in his life and the effect that has not only on his life, but the impact it had on the people of Israel. So I want to say thank you, Case, for reading our passage this morning and leading us in that because it deals with the whole issue of, of Saul's view of God resulting in, in how he viewed himself in relationship to God, which determined his level of obedience to God and God's response to that level of obedience. So if you have your Bibles open or your Bibles app open, I want to encourage you to keep it open this morning because we are going to walk through 1 Samuel 15 together. And together, Lord willing, we will come to the seriousness of being obedient to a holy God. We sang about that earlier. The comical, yet, yet humorous, but yet very sad side to Saul's response to being corrected. And then we're going to look at how God regrets making Saul king. See, because Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says that the word of God is alive and active. That it is the word of God, meaning... That this event in human history is more than just a story. It is more than good, a good read. What it means is that this story, this dialogue between God and Samuel and Saul has something to relate to us right here, right now, today. We can connect because God's word is alive. So the key today, what I want to challenge you with, is to look at this as a self-reflection. What does this mean to me? By no means is 1 Samuel 15 a judgment on anybody else. You look at it for yourself today. So the, for the remainder of our time, I'd like us to park ourselves in this chapter. And I want to walk us through the text by digging a little bit deeper into Saul's call to obedience. And we're going to take a look at Saul's failed obedience. We're going to look at what happens when Saul gets caught in his disobedience. And then we're going to take a little bit of time looking at God's final response. So let's look at Samuel 15, 1 to 7, as we look at the call given to Saul via Samuel. This is, call, this is his call to obedience as, as Israel's new king. Samuel was told by God to go and appoint Samuel as the new leader, as the king of Israel. And now Samuel comes to Saul and he gives him a very direct order from God. Chapter 3. It's clear 
It's gruesome, and it's incredibly direct. Here's what it says. It says, now go and attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put them to death. Men, women, and children, and infants, cattle, sheep, camels, and donkeys. In other words, wipe them off the face of the earth. Let's get rid of them. Go in and brutally destroy. Leave no person or leave no animal, no cattle behind. Ouch. That sounds rough, doesn't it? Why, though? Why such a brutal attack against the Amalekites? And we need to answer that by asking the question, well, who are these people? Who are the Amalekites? Well, the Amalekites, they were a nomadic people that lived in the southern part of Israel, which is now known as the Negev. It is believed that they are descendants of the Edomites. And Numbers 24, 20, Balaam refers to the Amalekites as the first among nations because they were the first people group that attacked the Israelites upon their exodus from Egypt. They were first in power. Scripture records the long-lasting feud between the Amalekites and the Israelites and, and God's direction to wipe off the Amalekites off the face of the earth. You know, many, many of us, I'm sure, remember the story well in the book of Exodus. This is where Moses was called to take the Amalekites and to go fight against them. And Moses has to stand on the hill, remember that, overlooking the battle. And every time he had his arms raised in the sky, the Israelites were winning. And as soon as his arms went down, the Amalekites began to win. So his friends came behind and lifted his arms up again so he could keep them up in the air to win. And the, Amalek, uh, the Israelites won the battle, but they didn't wipe them out because the Amalekites retreated. And now listen to what the Lord says after this battle. He says this. Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered. And make sure that Joshua hears it. Because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Then roughly 250 years later, we come to 1 Samuel 15. Where God now tells Samuel to fulfill the promise that he gave in Exodus. Generation after generation, the Israelites are in conflict with the Amalekites. Generations of brutal attacks against the people of God. And God, through Samuel, was very clear in his directive to Saul. Go get him. Go get him, Saul. Wipe him out. Destroy them once and for all. Enough is enough. No more of the brutal attacks against my people. So they gathered, Saul gathered 210 foot soldiers, and they marched, weapon in hand, ready for battle. But the Kenites, they were in town. And the Kenites, they were a people group that were very favorable, and they were kind to the Israelites. So they said to the Kenites, just head on out. Don't wait, don't hesitate, don't look back, just head out of town. And as soon as the Kenites were gone, the ambush began. Men killed. Women killed. Children killed. Infants slaughtered. Camels, donkeys, and all the livestock killed. It was brutal. It was a brutal war that went on to remove the Amalekites off the face of the earth. And you know, I think if we were to stop reading the story here, if we would end at verse 7, I think we would say that Saul 
was obedient to the call of God in his life. God said, go and destroy. And in verse 7, we read that Saul went in and he attacked. He did it. So the main question that we need to ask in verse 1 to 7 is this. Here's the main question. Am I obedient to God's will in my life? Am I obedient to God's will in my life? See, because what you think about God is going to determine how you answer that question. Because it determines your attitude towards a holy God. See, true obedience is this. It means to hear, to trust, to submit, and to surrender to God's will for your life. True obedience means to hear, to trust, to submit, and to surrender to God and his will. When we read the 61 and other commands of Scripture... We read things such as, honor one another above yourselves, or serve one another, or or bear one another's burdens, or clothe yourself with humility towards one another. That's just to name a few. There's 60 of them in Scripture. These commands are the will of God for your life. How obedient are you to them? See, because I mentioned earlier, this passage of Scripture in Samuel is a self-reflection. By no means is it a judgment of others. Do you and I, do we go over and above? Do we excel in the will of God for our lives? Or do we come half-hearted, only giving what we want, when we want, when we feel like it? See, because what we need to realize when we spend some time thinking about these questions of obedience is that it's far more than just making us look good or feel good or doing the right thing so that we get a check on the good side of the scorecard with a God that's a scorekeeper. See, because Saul going into battle with the Amalekites, man, that looked good to the Israelites, didn't it? This was their new king. Their their mighty earthly king, he went into battle. The triumph, the, the trumpets were blowing in victory. And the banners, oh, just imagine the banners waving. King Saul, King Saul, our king defeated the Amalekites. Oh, how good that must have made Saul feel, right? I can bet he was walking through town. Look at me, people. I'm the king. Look at what I did for you. I killed the Amalekites. And he felt pretty good. But do you see yourself in Saul? Are you there? I am. I'll be very honest with you, I am. Have I done the will of God to get the accolades? You bet I did. Have I done it to get gratitude from people? You better believe I have. God says, go clothe yourself with humility. I've done it. More for the accolades of the people then out of complete obedience to God's will. I'm a work in progress every day. Because you see, we need to be careful. I need to be careful that our obedience is not about looking good or making us feel good, but getting to the heart of what God wants for his people. Because when we live out our obedience for self-gain, that's when we tip the scales And we fall into failed obedience. Failed obedience. 
And, and this is where we find Saul in verses 8 to 9 as he's living into his failed obedience. We go from clear instruction to utter destruction. And the long-term effects of his disobedience continues through generations. Take a look at verse 8 and 9. It says this. He took King Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, spared Agag and the best sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and the lamb and everything good. Come on, Saul. Come on. You heard the instructions, didn't you? They were clear. As clear as day. Go. Totally destroy. But right here is where we see obedience turned to disobedience. He, he didn't do what God wanted. He didn't understand the heart of God for his people. Sure, he did about 95% of it, of what God wanted him to do, but he didn't do 100%. And hear this, 95% obedience is 100% disobedience. 95 obedience is 100% disobedience. 95 may be good in the world's eyes, but it's God who requires 100% of our obedience despite what the world says. Saul gave 95% obedience because his obedience became selective. They destroyed the weak, but they kept the strong. For Saul to keep King Agag alive after defeating the Amalekites, that was a trophy to be mounted for him so that everybody could see. Keeping the animals alive was a true sign of victory, but it was a true sign of disobedience. Picture this for a moment. The people heard the victory. The Amalekites, they've been destroyed. And King Saul riding on his great white stallion, comes riding into town, and King Agag is behind him in chains. He stumbles and he falls, and the people cheer. And behind King Agag, you have the cattle, you have the lamb, and you have the sheep, and the people keep cheering, long live King Saul, death to the Amalekites. Long live King Saul, death to the Amalekites, because King Saul, he united husbands to wives. He united children to their fathers. That is a victory that any king is going to long for. And the people of Israel loved him. His desire for fame got ahead of him. The king wanted his trophy, and, and he picked, and he, and he chose the fatted cow. He said, this cow is looking pretty good. I'm keeping it. But this donkey, let's get rid of it. Slaughter it. Due to pride. Saul only gave God 95%. And as a result, there was long-term consequences for the people of Israel. And we're going to get, that, get to that in just a, just a moment. But here's the question that we have to ask ourselves in verses 8 to 9 is this. Do we pick and choose where we want to be obedient to God because it makes us look good? Do we pick and choose? Because what you think about God is going to determine how you answer that question because it's going to reflect your attitude towards God and your desire to follow him. Do I give 95% obedience or do I give 100% obedience to a holy God? Because let's be honest, there are some commands in our life that we can do pretty quick and we can check it off and it can make us feel pretty good about life. But the difficult ones, the tough ones, the tough ones that kind of make us... Mm, not do those. Let's pick and choose. Take for a moment God's will for our life to forgive one another. 
You see, we are, we are so quick to say that we forgive somebody because we know it's the right thing to do, aren't we? Very quickly we will say that we forgive. God says, forgive. So I will go to my brother and I say, I forgive you. But I mean it verbally. I mean it only verbally. Because I think the question that we have to wrestle with is this. Am I and are you willing to sit down and are we willing to have the tough conversations, the needed conversations, and to work towards a healthy path of reconciliation and truly give forgiveness? See, it's hard. It's incredibly hard. But 95% forgiveness is not forgiveness. It's not being obedient to God. It may look good. It may make you feel good. Others might give you the accolades, but it doesn't to God. And there are consequences with living in this false reality. When we can deny it all we want, but it's going to catch up to us. It will. We will get called out. We will be held account by God. And I pray that us as brothers and sisters, we will hold each other accountable to this. Because we need to be obedient. Because in verse 10 to 13, we see that Saul was caught in his disobedience. And Samuel tries to confront him lovingly with a desire to restore a broken relationship, to restore the relationship between Samuel and God and Samuel and the people of Israel. Take a look at verse 11. It says this. This is the Lord speaking. I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instruction. Samuel was so disturbed by Saul's obedience that he cried out to the Lord, my Lord, what have you done? And then he marches the next morning straight out to Saul. And this is where it gets a little bit comical because Saul is oblivious to everything that's happening. He has no clue what's going on. He thinks he did everything right. He thinks that he followed the command of God 100%. Verse 13 says this, When Samuel reached Saul, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Isn't that interesting? Saul has no clue. He comes with excitement to Samuel. He says, I did it. I did it. Look at me. I did exactly what the Lord told me to do. See, Saul is like a child who is so excited that he just washed mom and dad's car. Right? We've all been there, right? Kids want to wash the car. Right? And as soon as the car is done and it's still wet, the kid calls mom and dad and says, look, mom and dad, I washed the car. Look how shiny. Look how beautiful the car looks. And you, of course, like, oh, yeah, it looks nice, kid. Right? But as soon as the car dries, that's when all the dirt comes back out. Right? That's when you start seeing all the spots that the child missed. And the car actually looks worse in the end than it did at the beginning. We've all been there, haven't we? This is Saul in his battle with the Amalekites. It looks good at the moment, but it is far from good. It looks good from afar, but that's about it. Then Samuel has to come and tell him the truth. And Samuel stands in front of him and he says, you messed up. You messed up. 
You messed up big time. And this is where it gets kind of comical. I find anyways it gets a little comical. Because Saul, Samuel, gets a little sarcastic. You hear that, Samuel? And that sheep? Moo. Moo. You hear it? Do you you hear that? Samuel. They were supposed to be slaughtered. They were supposed to be destroyed. And the best thing that Samuel, Saul could have done at that moment is admit, I messed up. I messed up. To confess, to come clean, to seek forgiveness, to come before Samuel and say, Samuel, please forgive me. And to bow down before a holy God and say, God, please forgive me. For I have sinned. I have messed up. But not Saul. No, sir, not Saul, because the next number of verses are a bunch of, of, of excuses that Saul takes. He never takes responsibility for his actions. He begins this thing that we like to call the blame game. He blames everybody else but himself as their commander in chief. Their fearless leader blames his soldiers. He blames the people. He says this in verse 15. The soldiers, it was the soldiers that took the cattle because, let's make it positive, because they wanted to give a sacrifice to the Lord. But hey, don't worry. We killed the rest. It sounds noble, doesn't it? But it's not what God commanded Saul. But Samuel, but Samuel, please, come on. What's a few cattle? What, what's, what's a king that's left in prison, in change? What harm? What harm? Seriously, buddy. And the fallout was huge for the Israelites. See, Samuel told Saul because of this that he was going to lose his kingship over Israel because of his disobedience. He needed to kill the Amalekites. He failed. He didn't listen. And the biblical history shows that there were some Amalekites that were left. And these few that were left were brutal. 1 Samuel 27 verse 8, we hear again of the Amalekites. That's when they're going to be mentioned. We'll hear about that a little bit later on in the sermon series. It was the Amalekites who raided King David's city in Ziklag. That's where his possessions and his family were taken. In Esther, the Jew-hating Haman is called an Agite. So it is presumed that Haman was a descendant of Agog. Thus the situation in Persia was a result of the Amalekites that were spared by King Saul in 1 Samuel 15. Saul's disobedience led to, in Esther's days, to a descendant of Agog attempting genocide against the Jews. All because he was disobedient to the will of God in his life. Saul's disobedience shows the importance of owning our disobedience, claiming it, acknowledging it, and coming before a holy God and saying, Lord, please forgive me, I messed up. Please. And then doing whatever we can to make it right with others. So here's the main question that we have to ask ourselves from verse 10 to 33 is this. Do I take responsibility for my disobedience? Do I take responsibility from my disobedience. See, because what you think about God is going to determine how you answer that question. 
It reflects your attitude towards God and how you are going to respond to your disobedience. You see, if all we view God as a judge, jury, and executioner, we would be quite slow to take responsibility. But if we view God as a loving father who loves you deeply, who desires nothing but the best for you, that will change, don't you think? I think it would. How you approach God. Because I'll be honest, at moments, there are moments I hate being confronted with the things that I am doing wrong. I don't like it. It stings. It hurts. It just gets you right in the heart. But I am grateful that I have people in my life that are going to hold me accountable, absolutely. Am I grateful that I have people that are going to bring me to Jesus and not away from Jesus? Absolutely. Because it's in these divine moments of being lovingly confronted that we can accept it and come to grips with our shortcomings. Or the other side of the coin is we can be stubborn in our pride and our narcissism and that we brush it off and we believe it's not me. I I had no clue what you're talking about because I didn't do it. I'm not responsible for it. Don't look at me. It has to be somebody else's. Oh, what a hard life to live if that's your mentality. And if that is you this morning, may I give you a word of encouragement? As hard as it may be to hear, will you please embrace the divine moments of being lovingly confronted and allow a holy father to do his work in your heart? Because here's the good news of the gospel. Taking responsibility for our disobedience is possible. It is possible. Oh, man, it may be difficult. It will be difficult. It'll be a rocky road. I am sure of it. But it's possible through the saving work of Jesus Christ. Because if we don't, we will lie in the same bed as Saul. And we, too, will hear God's final response to our disobedience. Take a look at verse 35 where we hear the Lord's final response to his disobedience. He says this. Until the day Samuel died, he didn't go see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him, and the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. We just read that a little bit earlier in verse 11 where where the Lord says this, I regret I made Saul king because he has turned away from me and not carried out my instruction. Strong words, isn't it? It's strong words, and when we look at the original text, the word regret does not refer to God changing his mind or making a mistake or or wishing that he could do a do-over. In the original text, the word regret refers to a big sigh, (sighs) but not a change of mind. Parents, it's like when we want to bestow wisdom onto our teenagers, isn't it? We give them advice. They come asking for advice. We want to give them advice. We share life with them. We've lived the journey. Come on, kids. We've lived it. We've been there. We understand dating. We understand work. We understand universities. and We understand it because we've been there. And with all the wisdom and all the insight that you give, your son or your daughter still decides to take a different path. And you realize that life could have been better if only they would have taken heed to the wisdom that you would have given. And you look at your kids' life and you just sigh. Ah, 
it could have been better. It could have been better, if only. And we love our kids. We don't want different kids, at least I hope not. We love them. We want what's best for them. But we do sit back as parents sometimes, and it's just like, ah, if only. See, it's that type of regret that is reflected here in the text. God looks at Saul, and he gives a big sigh. How different. How different it would have been if the sin of pride didn't get in the way for Saul. The father's love is so deep for his people. God's love for Saul doesn't change. But the life that Saul lives bears the fruit of his disobedience. He never takes responsibility for it. And by the grace of God, may that not be us. May we as a church, may we take responsibility for our disobedience. Let's take a look at verse 27. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught, Saul caught hold of his hem of his robe and it tore. See, the tearing of Samuel's robe is a symbol of living into the fruits of his disobedience. Verse 28 says this, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a mere human that he would change his mind. The tearing of the robe is a, is a symbol of, of separation separation from Saul's leadership of God's people. God's making a way for another, and that other is being, that other person is King David. A mere shepherd boy is being raised up to take on leadership. And it's David who receives the prophecy of 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 16. And it's important that we read that. So here's what it says. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors... I will raise up for your offspring, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish a throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. And when he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod wielded by men, with flogging inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from you before. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me, and your throne will be established forever. This prophecy points through King Solomon to another king, Jesus. This is Jesus. He is the descendant of David whose kingdom will last forever. Because you see, when Jesus came and he died on the cross for the complete forgiveness of your sins, for the complete forgiveness of my sins, when he was hung there on the cross and when he breathed his last breath, the veil, the curtain in the tabernacle was torn from top to bottom. God 
through his son Jesus Christ restored the relationship between God and his people, the symbol of the torn robe of Samuel that caused separation is restored through the torn cloth of the veil of the tabernacle through the work of Jesus Christ. Because when the cloth of the veil of the tabernacle was torn, God's people were once again granted full access to the Father. Granted full access. You see, there is, there is no longer a need for the separation between you and the Father because of His Son, Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Because you see, that's the good news of the gospel for you today. That is the assurance that we can humbly, humbly come and admit our disobedience before a loving father and to our brothers and sisters. To where we can come and we can sit before each other and we can repent and we can turn in our eyes with our eyes fixedly, eyes firmly fixed on who Jesus Christ is, our King and our King eternal. Thanks be to God our Father. So let me end with this question. And it's an important question. And it will change how you walk in obedience or it's going to change how you respond to your disobedience. What comes to your mind when you think about God? Well, you've been listening to the latest message in our series through First and Second Samuel, tracing the life of David, the Shadow King. You can find more information about this series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway.